Good morning. Welcome back to Baltimore Real Estate Full Circle. Today we have the privilege to have a very special guest who's been in the market for probably longer than I have been alive, if I am not wrong. <laughs> Welcome and please introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Mark Owens, a Baltimore landlord. Beautiful. Mark, I think everyone, I don't know everyone, but I should hope that most people listening to this probably either heard of Mark, probably met Mark at one of the events he's, he's probably spoken at quite a few times. So Mark, tell us, how did you really get into to real estate? What, you know? You know, when I started, uh, it was, you know, back in the early 2000s. Around 2001, I decided that uh, the stock market just wasn't for me. It was just, you know, you don't have any control over it. And it's just based on the whims of, you know, whoever's in office or running the Fed. And uh, I decided to start investing my money in real estate. I'd saved up a bunch of money, had a, had a nice start. And, uh, and that was it. I just started, uh, I started looking at Baltimore City Rentals and I started, I put together a spreadsheet to calculate my cash on cash return on my investment. What cash on cash, if you don't mind me cutting in here, what, at that point, this is what, 2000? What year was this? It was, well, I bought my first one in 2002. 2002, okay. I was looking for a 30% cash on cash return. 30%? Yes. Wow. Yeah. So it took a long time to find them. Yeah. But eventually I did. And, uh, and that was it. I was getting like 31, 32, 33%. And, you know, until a few years later when I figured out the Burr thing that uh, I guess it had always been around, but it wasn't called that back then. I just kind of figured it out on my own. And then it was, you know, most of the stuff that I bought from that point forward was with very little to zero out of pocket. And that really enables you to scale because... Yeah, I mean, even if you start with, you know, $300,000 in the bank, if you're putting 15, 20, 30 down, you know, after 10 houses, you're broke. Yeah. But if you can get the equity and, you know, use hard money and all that stuff, then there's no limit to how far you can go. Wow. I mean, I, I jumped ahead, but go ahead. Nah, no problem. The, the, believe me, there's a lot to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, but that, that was definitely a great overview of how you got into it originally, what brought you into it? And probably everyone listening, everyone has some money sitting in the index fund. I hope so. Yeah, I, I sure hope so. But like you've probably seen in the last few months, until recently, it's been going down. It recently came back up a little bit. But I was watching my index funds. I'm like, ah, let me pull it out and put it into real estate. Like this is not looking too good. If you're going to do the market index funds or, you know, unless you're going to spend like full time, like really analyzing stuff, like, you know, P ratios and just all that stuff. Index funds outperform 80% of the fund managers with their teams of MBAs and, you know, all that and stuff. And their costs is like, are a lot lower. yeah, it's like 0.08% in most cases. It's like yeah. peanuts. Yeah. I haven't had a nickel in the market since uh, I took everything out in 2001. Really? You don't have any index or anything? Zero. Really? Can't beat the returns I get in, in real estate. Can't That's true. Them. That's true. I guess I'm very, I'm very, not conservative, but like old school when it comes to investing in index funds. You know what I'm saying? Well, the, the fact that a bank will lend you 80 to 90% of the purchase price of an investment property, but they won't lend you 1% to buy an index fund ought to tell you what the risk is right there. Oh yeah, that risk analysis is definitely yeah. very, very high. Yeah. I mean, the banks are smarter than both of us put together. Wow. And they know that mortgages are a safe bet. Right. In a, in a basket, you know, not just individuals, but in a basket, it's a safe bet. Right, because then, like you said, they end up selling it anyway in a secondary market, and if like by what happened with Obama when he bailed out all the banks when it came to 2008, so they're overall they're pretty cushioned when it comes to oh, yeah. you know yeah, lending. The, the banks will never lose. Yeah, it's, it's going well, to be. I shouldn't I shouldn't say that because some of them have failed. Like you know, recently, uh, the one Silicon SBC, Valley, SBC, yeah, but yeah. Uh, the uh, 
in general, the banks, they're, you know, they're run by really smart guys. Right. I mean, they lost, but because of the way it works, they were packaged and sold off right. to another bank. Yep. Which is actually interesting. Like, I, when originally, when I started off, and I was like, what happens if we have another 2008 and everything crashes? Am I not going to have a loan anymore? And I said, obviously, now I know after learning a lot more, it's like, no, you're going to get packaged yep. and sold to someone else. Yeah, but I mean, the truth is, like... I don't care what the market's doing. If you're buying for a long term, like 10 years or more, it doesn't matter what happens to the prices in the real estate market. It doesn't matter if you get to sell it. So if you bought today and the prices dip 20% for the next three years, and then, but you're not going to sell for 10 years, you got seven years for it to come back up. And if you're cash flowing for that whole 10 years and you get all your money back at the end, who cares? Right. And I think one of the very important things, which is why I really am happy that you're here on the podcast, is that there's a lot of new people that got into it I'm definitely relatively new in comparison to you or a lot of other people. And I think it's good to hear a perspective from someone that's been in this market since the 2000s, the early 2000s, before even the 2008 crash, to hear what's really the main gameplay when it comes to strategy. A lot of people try to buy and get out in a year. Is it a long-term hold? In your opinion, from what you've seen, what do you think is actually a productive strategy coming into it? Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's a complex question because it really depends on what people's goals are. It's kind of like, you know, do you want to do, you know, go day trading stocks or do you want to buy and hold, you know, the blue chips for 20 years? Uh, for me, what has seemed the most reliable way to build, you know, family wealth and generate income at the same time is a long-term buy and hold. I would say, you know, long-term meaning at a minimum, minimum five years. Uh, when, if you're buying a property thinking you're going to flip it in a year, then that's not really investing. It's more speculation than investing. Right. And so for me, it's, you know, anything, if you're just going to buy something and hold it for a year, unless you got a bunch of equity, like if you're a wholesaler and you, you know, you got a steal or you got a property for 70 cents on the dollar ready to move in, uh, you know, then you would probably benefit if you sold it in a year and then took that extra 30% and bought two or three more properties. But right. again, it's those are always really difficult questions because it always does depend on what your goals are. Right. And we all have, you know, different goals. Are different goals. Right. If you're like you're saying, if you're a property, if you're someone that's trying to flip properties, then obviously that's very different. But here, I guess we're talking more about investments, rentals, and right. stuff like that. And I, I would say long term is the way to go. And that, you know, it's like I mentioned goals. Like it depends on what your goals are. But it's not just the goals; it's the resources that you have available to attain those goals. Some people have, you know, might have $10,000 in the bank. Some people might have a million. Some people might have a full-time job. Some people might have, they can spend 80 hours a week building this business. Some people's families might be on board with it, all for it. And the other, you know, some other people's families might be like, well, I don't know, that looks a little risky. And uh, I think that, you know, so that's why I just say, I hate to, you know, say that to you, but it's just such a complex question because it does depend on your goals and the resources you have available. So, but as far as like one size fits all, uh, everything else being even, I would say long-term buy and hold, minimum five years Right, is the way to go. And I think it's very important because recently I actually spoke to someone that called me. He bought a property recently, a multifamily, and he said, hey, I want to sell this in like two years. And I'm like, no. Like, like especially with the price he wanted, I'm like, first of all, where the market is in two years, that's one story. Mm-hmm. Second of all, you're buying in Baltimore, like, you, you gotta hold it for longer well, than that. The property's got to appreciate at least ten percent just to break even, because if you know if you buy it for a hundred and you sell it for a hundred and ten, you know you're gonna pay six thousand to the agent, 
you're going to pay half the transfer and recordation, which is in Baltimore, like maybe another $1,800. That's almost 10% just to break even. And then, so even if you did, you know, get 15, 20%, then Uncle Sam's going to come take a third of that. And exactly. Because you haven't had any time to depreciate anything. Exactly. And there's probably not that much out there to put your 1031 into, so you're probably going to end up paying that capital gains. Yep. And that's, that's just the reality of the market. So something interesting, which I've noticed from our conversations, I don't think you're going to expect the next question. Um, what, in your opinion, and something I've realized, which is from our conversations, no matter what life presented you in a certain sense, mm-hmm. you always somehow figured out a way to go above it and figure out what to do. What do you think that comes from? Is it just a personality? Like, what do you think that comes from within yourself to see, okay, I'm not satisfied with the status quo and I need to figure out what to do? I think, I think that that skill that I have for like problem solving and all is kind of like a muscle skill. And I don't want to, for the sake of time, I don't want to go too far back. But when I was young, I, was, I really had a lot of serious issues with drugs and stuff. And, you know, created a lot of, you know, drama and difficulties in my life. And when you're in that lifestyle, you're constantly creating problems, and then you're trying to figure out, well, how do I get out of this? How do I do this? Okay, I'm homeless in Jacksonville, Florida. I have no money, and I'm starving. And if I get a job, I'm not going to get paid for two weeks. How am I going to eat for that two weeks? And the answer was get a job at a place that sells food, and then I can eat the first day. Wow. So, I mean, so it's like that is the, the way that I look at anything. And, I, and the same skill set uh, works in every area of my life. I just I look at the, you know, the goal. What's the end goal? Where am I at? And then I just start going backwards from the end goal to where I'm at until I just find connections that show me a path to get from where I am to where I want to be. And it could be like something like this, like, man, I want to buy a 30-unit apartment building, and it's going to cost $2 million, and I don't have any money. What do I do? Okay, well, the goal is I want to buy the apartment building. And the problem is I don't have $2 million, so how do I get it? Okay, well, who do I know that do has $2 million? Or who do I know that has struggled with this issue before where they don't have a lot of money and they want to buy properties and I could reach out to them and talk to them and find out how they did it maybe shorten that whole learning curve I mean I could figure it out myself but if I can make a phone call and figure it out in two minutes then that's the way I'm going to spend my time uh, so that's pretty much the way that I work with everything it could be a bad tenant you know maybe you've got a tenant that's not you know that's behind in the rent and they're you know and you know it's going to take you you know three months to get them out and you're going to lose another $4,500 in rent and so I'm thinking, like, okay, the problem is the tenant's not paying. Uh, that's where I'm at, where I want to be. I want him out. And it's going to cost me 4500 Well, if I approach that tenant and say, look, I'll give you 1500 bucks, we can give you out this weekend. A lot of landlords don't want to do that. I'm not paying them. Like, yeah. I, I would rather spend 1500 and get my property back two months faster than lose 4500 sitting around waiting, hoping that they don't damage it more or the eviction isn't canceled because it's too hot or too cold or raining or whatever. So, uh, so that's the way that I look at everything. I look from the, where I'm at and where I want to be and then just look for paths to get there. Right. And I think that something really important that you mentioned, I think specifically when it comes to cash for keys, I think in the, when we had the, the beginning issue of COVID with the fact that we were not allowed to even evict, I think ourselves and a lot of other owners ended up adapting that kind of perspective, which is Sure, it sucks, and I'll have to pay a lot of money to get them out, but that's the only way to get them out. You just right. got to take the bullet, bite it, and that's that. It's, you got to look at the big picture. It's a lot cheaper. Yeah. And I, I've been doing that for years, way before COVID. Uh, but I also pay good tenants to stay. 
you know, if the tenant, uh, if, they, if they're a great tenant, they've been there two years and they tell me they're moving, I ask them, why are you moving? Oh, I want a bigger place or I want this or that. And then, then, you know, and again, I will start at the beginning. Here's where I'm at, I got a great tenant. And the end is they're moving out and I got a vacant unit. And I'm gonna have it vacant one or two months and I gotta paint it and you know, do whatever the turnover involves. And that's gonna end up costing me maybe three, four or $5,000. Well, what if I pay them a thousand to renew their lease for a year? And a lot of them will actually do that. And, uh, and so it cost me a thousand to keep them, but it saved me maybe four or $5,000 in the turnover. Plus the next tenant might be an idiot. Right. So it's like I pay bad ones to go and I pay good ones to stay. That's, that's definitely something that people, I, I think what you're saying essentially is someone, sometimes you gotta kind of let go of your pride and realize, okay, what is actually the best situation? I wouldn't even say it's pride. I think it's just big picture. Right. Thinking. I mean, it's like nobody's getting me over a barrel or anything. I'm, it's a decision. Like, do I want to lose $5,000 or $1,500 or $1,000? I'd rather lose 1000 and keep a good tenant and not have to deal with the headaches. Especially, right. you know, it's like, that's, but that's me. I mean, everybody isn't, you know, every, some people will fight over every nickel and dime. My, you know, my peace of mind and free time is worth more than most nickels and dimes. Right. Especially if you're able to build something else and be going on to something else entirely, like you sure. said, this can make you so much more money. It's just literally a waste of time yep. to deal with that. And I think another interesting topic, I mean, you know, when it comes to Baltimore, which again, myself and other people that haven't been in the market as long as yourself, when it comes to economy, now obviously this is just your opinion based on your experience. What do you see overall? And I know this question is gonna be breaking down to probably two or three parts, but we can start off with in general, from when you started in Baltimore, which you grew up in Baltimore till, till today, what have you seen to really give the local investor a perspective on, on what could you kind of expect going forward? Okay. All right, before I answer that, I wanna add something else. Uh, Baltimore is one of the cash flow capitals of the United States. We have people coming from New York, California, Northern Virginia, DC, and countries across the Atlantic and the Pacific to buy rental properties in Baltimore City because it's really difficult to find uh, cash flow that, that our region has to offer. With that said, there are a lot of problems with uh, you know, the politics and the culture, stuff like that, that continue to uh, make our job more difficult as time goes on. When I think back about the year 2002 and what I had to do to maintain a legal rental in Baltimore City versus today, it's a lot more regulation today than it was then. Uh, for the most part, you get used to it, just like anything else. You just, you know, you just kind of get used to it. And especially if you're just starting, you don't know any better. That's just the way it is. So it's, you know, it's not going to be that big of a deal for you. For those of us that have been in the business for a while, we've seen that. And uh, it can get frustrating, but it's just the cost of doing business. I mean, I can either invest in Baltimore and make 20, 30, 40, 50% on my money per year, or I can invest, you know, in New York and make zero. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, it's, it's just how much you're willing to put up with. And uh, I think that, you know, Baltimore City, despite all of the problems, it's, it's a gold mine. I mean, I know a lot of people that have gotten rich off of Baltimore City real estate that are, that are very wealthy. And um, just like anything else, it's how much work you're willing to put into it. Just like one of the gym. You go once a month, you get a little bit. You go every day, every other day, you're going to get a lot more out of it. And unfortunately, a lot of people, you know, come into Baltimore just thinking it's just going to be, you know, just peaches and cream and real easy, and it's not. And uh, the the tenants in Baltimore City, it's it's a culture thing where 
it could be if you're in the you know middle to lower income neighborhoods in Baltimore, it's going to be a real challenge for you to stay in business because the market tenants in Baltimore and those neighborhoods, the housing in Baltimore is high compared to what the average income of the Baltimore market tenants is. Right. So I think the average income last time I checked was like thirty to forty thousand dollars. Right. And that's that's not much. Yeah, it's no. fifteen to twenty bucks an hour. And yeah. you know if the average rent one of three bedroom house is thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen hundred, you know, after they're you know, after they pay their taxes and they pay their housing, there's not a lot of you know, money there's not much left over. Um, so that's why for me, I I have rented primarily to subsidize tenants. And there's a lot of different subsidies. Section eight's one, but there's a lot of other ones that are out there. And uh, when the, you know, a lot of my friends used to ask, you know, kind of laugh at me, you know, because of my tenants. You know, none of them work. You know, they're sitting around now smoking weed, playing video games all day. And they laughed and I was like, well, that's their, you know, I don't care. I'm getting the rent. I don't care what they do. It's like, it's their life. If they're happy, good for them. Right. And then when COVID hit and, you know, they're all like, you know, their tenants stopped paying rent and, you know, all this stuff. And mine didn't stop at all. I mean, COVID affected me less than 1%. Wow. As far as the rent that I got. It didn't affect me at all because my tenants were, you know, subsidized. And, right. you know, the government, you know, they kept taking our money and they kept giving it back to us. Right. So that worked for me. So I think... In Baltimore, like, that's the way to go. And there are tenant placement people, you know, if, like, you know, maybe you live in, I don't know, New Jersey, and you're trying to, you know, buy and manage properties in Baltimore City, but you don't have the time to come down here and, you know, look for, you know, the Section 8 tenants and do the marketing and the showings and all that stuff. There are tenant placement people in Baltimore that are very good at this shop. Can I say his name? For sure. Yeah, like, Jack Resnick is one of them. He's, I mean, I use him all the time. He's phenomenal. He, he knows that office he knows everybody in there. He probably knows where they live. And we uh, actually just we happened to have a meeting the other day, and we stopped. We had like what an hour conversation yeah, with him. Yeah, yeah. And he's a, he's a really smart guy, really decent, very knowledgeable. And uh, so it, you know, it doesn't matter where you're living at. If you're going to try to buy stuff in Baltimore, cash. You know, as far as like cash on cash return, the middle to lower middle is the sweet spot. And people like that on your team to help you, like you know get tenants is you know a key to making this business run smooth and uh and you know you can run remotely which is you know what i really like right and i think three important things you mentioned that i want to bring up which is first of all making sure you have the right vendors because you know a property and i know a property Mm -hmm. that was a very functioning property someone sold it to an out-of-town investor they got on a manager and it ended up being a nightmare right and I, I know this person I tell them hey I wish you would have called me before when you purchased it because I could have gotten you in touch maybe this a different vendor that might be fit your needs a little better I'm not saying this vend- this vendor is good or bad it just didn't work with this particular buyer and I feel like it's always good to just reach out and I always say whenever I sell a property and someone asks me for a vendor like Jack Resnick or other agents just like himself mm-hmm. I say you know what Ask Jack about the deal. He has no skin in the game, really. Like, ask the contractor what they think and see if they like it. Because if they don't like it and you don't want to buy it, fine, no problem. I, I don't care. I'm not, I'm not looking to throw one over you. Go, go ask them. And I think that that transparency, like you said, and that trust that you have within your vendors is extremely important. Yeah, I agree with you 100% on that. The hardest part of this business, it's not finding the properties. It's not finding the tenants. The hardest part is finding the vendors. 
whether it's a plumber or a property management company. The same thing, uh, the same rules apply. And if you are new to Baltimore real estate, uh, one of the things that I stress more than you know above anything else is the networking stuff. Like if I was gonna move to Miami and start real estate investing, I'd start looking for real estate meetups and real estate investor association meetings and uh, and try to find other people. Maybe you know look on the houses for sale on Craigslist and look for wholesale deals and call those guys up and say, hey man, let's get out to lunch, and start to meet people because the truth is that if I'm gonna enter a market, I'd rather go find somebody that's been in there 15 years and say, hey man, you know any good plumbers you trust or anything or roofers? I mean, the guy's been in 15 years, he knows. If I'm just gonna like start looking on Craigslist for a plumber, I'm gonna get screwed. And especially Craigslist, they should be working. They shouldn't be sitting at home looking on Craigslist. And um, same with property management companies. Uh, you really, you wanna interview them and verify, you know, trust but verify. If they say, yeah, we can, you know, handle your 25 units with Section 8 tenants, but they have zero experience with Section 8 tenants, then it's probably not the best fit for you. They might be excellent, you know, if they're renting to like upper class, you know, maybe upper middle class, they might be like the best property managers in town. Not Vernon. Yes. Right. But it depends, it really depends on what your niche is. You know, if, if you're in higher income areas, then one property manager might be really good. And if you're in lower income areas, which are more tenant challenging than property challenging, uh, then you're gonna need a, probably a different property manager. Right. But, uh, it's a tough job, and I would suggest that anybody that's starting manages their own properties for you know a year or two or three, as long as they can, uh, just to see what all it really entails. So if you know if you call a property management company and they say you know, well let's just say this: you look at your property management statement and you see that they charge three hundred dollars to sneak a toilet, and you know a plumber that does it for eighty, you're getting screwed. So, yeah. But you wouldn't know that unless you did it yourself. I just had a you know a drain cleared this morning. The plumber I used charged eighty bucks. Wow! And I cash app him. What's his number? <laughs> I'll give it to you. I'll give it. It's called maintain that drain. Definitely and, uh, send it over. Yeah, and uh, you know he's awesome. I've been using him for years. I've, I've actually told him the to raise. I pay him. I paid him a hundred dollars. I always pay him more than we because it's so cheap. And it's it like, is. And so when I call, I want him to know. Oh, there's Mark. You know, it's like I paid him immediately. Like within ten minutes, he gets it. Exactly. And. That way, and I do that with all my vendors. I don't care if your vendor's a plumber, electrician, the hauling guy, the trash guy, the painter. I pay them as soon as I possibly can. I don't like chasing people for money and they don't like it either. And the truth is that when you pay like that and you call them, they pick up the phone, you know, because you're like a good customer. And, you know, good customers are just as hard to find as good vendors are. So you want to, you want to, if you want a good vendor, you want to be a good customer. You said exactly what I was thinking. I mean, you have a lot more experience with this, but I, I, I do see that when I hire someone and I pay them right away, which mm -hmm. I try to do across the board, they end up, I got text messages from these vendors now. They're like, oh, do you have a job? And I'm like, nope, and God, I'm good. I don't need you right. now, but we'll keep in touch. That's, but that's the way it works. I mean, because yeah. if, you know, if you're a good paying customer, they want to work with you. you know? Right. So it's, uh, and a lot of people are very, you know, very short-sighted with that. Well, you know, it's usually net 30. I'll pay them in a month. Like, man, these guys are, you know, most of them are week to week. You know, they're, they're living paycheck to paycheck. So if, you know, if you owe them $700, that's, you know, a significant amount of money for a lot of these guys. So I don't want to make them wait. Yeah. And it's not your, it's not your job to start calculating. <laughs> He's making, you know, it's like. Yeah, okay. I don't care what he makes. It's, exactly. It's, if I don't feel like doing it, like snaking a tool, I'm not going to go snake a tool for eight bucks. <laughs> yeah. You know? But he will. So it's, you know. I mean, if somebody, you know, there's other things I might do for 80 bucks. I might talk to you on the phone for 10 minutes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's definitely a lot less uh, burdensome than just uh, yeah. snaking some 
some tenants toilet yeah. and stuff some toys down there. But I have done it. In the beginning, I did do it. So I'm not above it. I, you know, maybe I, I am a little bit now, but in the very beginning, I, I didn't know anybody. 2002. There's no, you know, there's no uh, Craigslist. There's no Facebook. There's no meetup.com. There's none of that. And I just, for the first year or two, I didn't know any landlords. So I had to figure it out on my own. And, right. Uh, and, you know, and I got a lot of bad vendors, you know, like my painter shows up and then he wants to borrow $5 to get by a six pack at eight o'clock in the morning so he can, doesn't have to wait till the end of the day to drink. Borrow. Yeah, right. And it's just <laughs> like, wait, so you're going to paint my house while you're drunk? It's like, and he's like, no, no, I don't want, you know, I was like, you know, he doesn't think he's got a problem. I'm like, man, you got a problem. If it's eight o'clock in the morning and you got to borrow $5 to buy a six pack to paint this living room, you have a problem. Yeah, yeah. And uh, interesting stuff. A hundred percent. And I think really in, the, in that same mode, getting to the second part, which is more economy overview and, and what you've mm -hmm. seen. Have you seen overall growth, overall crime going up? Because obviously everyone looks at statistics, this and that, but you don't usually hear from an investor that's been in the market for 20 years that really could tell you what he's personally seen. Yeah, I've, uh, I mean, the crime, it's real. You know, I saw, uh, I heard a gunshot when I was standing in front of one of my properties, ran in that building, ran in the house real quick, and then came back out and walked around the corner. There was a guy laying in the gutter with a bullet in the back of his head or a hole in the back of his head. Uh, wow. I was at another property a few years ago and, you know, heard some gunshots like well, maybe 10 or 15 houses down and, you know, ducked behind a brick wall and then looked around and it was quiet and went down and, you know, found a guy got shot in the back and, you know, called 911 and stayed there with him, you know, until the ambulance got there. And, I, you know, I got his name and, you know, asked him, you know, are you allergic to anything? He goes, I don't know if the guy's going to pass out or not. You know, I want to be able to right. be able to tell the EMT something when they get there. So, I mean, this stuff is real. Um, Have you seen it get better since you started or really no, more decline? No, no, I think it's Baltimore is declined. It's been really in decline since uh, probably the early 80s. You know, I guess when the crack thing started, like in the late 80s, like 86, 87, 88, that's when it accelerated. But uh, I think that, you know, just the the culture in Baltimore is interesting. And the people elect people to fix the problems, they don't fix them, and then they elect the same people over and over, like, you know, in a lot of other cities. And uh, as far as, like, the big picture, like the economy goes, if, again, it doesn't matter. If you're holding for, you know, 10 years, it doesn't matter. If we're, you know, I wish I'd bought more stuff in 2008, 2009. You know, I was afraid like everybody else. And now in hindsight, I was like, man, if that happened again, I know what I'm doing. You know, I'm gonna run out and, you know, buy another 100 houses. Right. And uh, that's my Baltimore accent, 100 houses. I'm gonna go out and buy another 100 houses. <laughs> and, uh, Sorry, man. You're no from, problem. You're from, you know, you're from New York. And I have my coffee and my yeah, hot dog. Yeah, exactly. You, you hear my accent. I, you know, we sound kind of... A little different. Backwoods. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I mean, I guess, I think last time we spoke, I think there, like you said, there probably are some areas that you see growth. I there mean, are. There are. I mean, there are some areas. And, I mean, this... It, it's not just exclusive to Baltimore. I think that all, you know, cities with a half million or more people have the gentrification stuff or maybe a neighborhood's run down but then people come in maybe there's something there that people want to you know that are attracted to like you know a water view over the harbor or maybe a giant park like patterson park which is pretty big for baltimore and uh where it offers like it's an amenity you know you buy a row house you know or a townhouse and you know a block away there's this giant park that's like you know 400 acres with a pond in it and you know running trails and everything else 
And so areas that have amenities like that tend to pop up more uh, and improve more than areas that don't really have a lot to offer. So you can imagine if you're you know, 25 years old and you're making decent money and you're thinking, man, I want to move down to Baltimore. I really love like the nightlife and, you know, Fed Hill or, you know, Canton, Canton. or Fellows Point or something like that. Then that's where you're going to want to move to is in the areas where things that are happening that you like. Uh, if you're not interested in those things, then it's not going to matter to you. But the people that aren't interested in those things, a lot of those are actually leaving Baltimore. Uh, just because that's, you know, typically the streets are safer, the schools are better. I'm saying know. Baltimore City versus out of like like Baltimore County. I think the schools are a little better. Yeah, it's definitely a lot safer. I think Baltimore will probably have 300 murders this year, and Baltimore County might have 50. Wow. With a with a larger population. Wow. I mean, I think that that's definitely. I mean, you these days everyone sees it. Investors mm -hmm. are flocking yeah. to the county. Yeah, but it's always been like that. I mean, even you know in the 80s it was the same way. It was 300 murders a year every year. And uh, so that stuff hasn't really changed. It's, I mean, there was a, a few year period where it went down to dipped into low twos, but uh, I don't think it's statistically significant over the long run. I think that, uh, and if you go back 50, 60, 70 years, I'm sure there are more now than there were back then. And the population was significantly more now than it is now. Uh, it was larger then than it is now. And now there's more crime than there was then. But I think a lot of that's because the people that can afford it that are doing well move out, and the people that are kind of stuck in the socioeconomic thing are still there. And, right. uh, and unfortunately, those are a lot of the people that are you know, committing the crimes. Uh, and it's, it's terrible, it's a terrible thing, and I don't have an answer for it. I wish I did, but... So anyway, back to your question. I think if you're investing long-term, it, it's not gonna be that significant you know unless you're gonna hold it for a hundred years and in a hundred years it'll probably come back but uh, you know if you're gonna hold in Baltimore for 5 10 15 20 years I think if you buy in the right neighborhoods where people want to live uh, you can't go wrong right it's interesting because like I think you grew up in the Hamden area that's correct so that's that's also an interesting area what do you think brought up that area in particular yeah I'll tell you it was there was one thing in particular uh, when I grew up there in the I was, you know, early, late 60s, 70s. Uh, it was very safe. You know, you could leave your car windows down. Nobody was going to steal anything. You know, front door, um, nobody locked their doors. Uh, it was very, there was no drug dealing on the streets and no prostitution and all that stuff. And then, uh, but it was like, you know, blue collar, like, you know, that's, it was a very blue collar neighborhood. You know, Working unions, class. Yeah, yeah. Unions, people that are, you know, driving forklifts or 18 wheelers, like just blue collar stuff. But it was, you know, it was safe and it was clean. And then uh, there was a restaurant that opened up called Cafe Hun, which opened up on 36th Street, which was like the little main street of this community. And it was completely different than everything else that was there. And it became a destination. So people that lived in other parts of Baltimore or Baltimore County wanted to drive down to Hamden to just go to Cafe Hun to have lunch or breakfast or dinner. And once that opened up, then a lot of other little like kitschy type places opened up, uh, a lot of restaurants, a lot of places that sold like, you know, unique kind of arts and craft type stuff. And as those opened up, some of the older neighborhood businesses like the shoe repair store shut down the jeweler that had been there for 80 years shut down. And then in their place came these new things that uh, that the people that were moving there were more attracted to. 
you know, I guess you could say like the yuppie type thing, and then it became, the, I guess, the grunge or whatever they are now. Mike uh, and John Hopkins do yeah, things and yes. all these guys. And, uh, and it's still very safe, but it's an interesting community because it's pretty much at 9 o'clock, everything's closed. You know, there's not much going on there. It's not like Fellas Point or Canton or Fed Hill where, you know, the, there's a bunch of bars open until 2 in the morning and people are out in the streets. Uh, it's more like a small town. But it was really, just to get back to your question, it was that Cafe Hun that was like the thing that started this whole revolution in that neighborhood. Wow. And sometimes, like you said, you really, sometimes you can't really know and you have to wait five, ten years to see what happens. Like, Well, that's where I started buying. I mean, I, my first property I bought was a three-unit on Falls Road. I paid 75000 for it. Uh, not, I didn't know anything. I just put my spreadsheet together and I found a property on web crawler or whatever search engine I was using, Alta Vista. Called the agent, you know, put all the numbers in my spreadsheet. It was a 30% return. Ended up buying the property. And then uh, I think I paid 75. I put, while I owned it, about 15 in it. And then a couple of years later, I sold it to an appraiser for either 170 or 180,000. Wow. Wow. How much do you think that's actually worth today, though? <laughs> uh, in the twos, maybe, maybe, maybe low threes. It's still, it's vacant, as far as I know. I mean, really? He converted it to like an office space and it was vacant for years and years. Actually, it had a wholesaler try to sell it to me for more than I sold it for. I know this property. <laughs> yeah, no, it was kind of funny, but I mean, that was just like beginner's luck or dumb luck. But the truth is, like, I was in the game. And if you want things like to happen, you have to get in the game. You can't just sit on the sidelines and, you know, and watch everybody else make all the money. There's enough out there for all of us that are willing to do the work. The, right. But the, tr the unfortunate truth is most people don't want to do the work. They're looking for the get rich quick. I want to buy a rental and retire in a year. And it's like, it doesn't work like that. No, 100%. What do you, I mean, we really will finish off with this. It's, sure. been, it's been a great interview. And as always, I love meeting up and talking through a bunch of different real estate related things. What, what is your predictions coming up? I know obviously no one holds that crystal ball, but rates are high, prices are high. I know a lot of investors that have definitely slowed down and can't find deals. What, what are you thinking when it comes to this? I know investors that are finding too many deals and they need to slow down because they have too much going on. Tell them to, to send yeah. me one of the deals and they don't they want to buy. They definitely will not do that. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, I think that despite the interest rates, you know, if, if you're paying seven and three quarters to eight and a half, something like that, if you put the numbers in a spreadsheet and the numbers work, it's only going to get better. You know, the rents, for the most part, I recently read a report that showed that some of the rents are going down. I haven't experienced that. All that I've ever seen in this business is the rents going up. Um, that's just, you know, maybe that's just my experience and it's not indicative of the market in general, but that's been my experience. I think that if you're going to buy and hold in Baltimore long-term, there's always a good time. It's, it's always a good time to buy. If the numbers work for you and you're going to hold it, there's never a bad time. You know, the interest rates are going to come down, you, you know, I'm not saying you know that refi is the solution, but if the numbers work at eight percent for twenty years, the numbers work at eight percent for twenty years. So right. I, I wouldn't, because it's it's very easy for all of us in air in any area of our life to look for reasons why not to do things. I'll start the diet next week. I don't like vegetables. You know, it's like I'll start investing in real estate when I have more money or more time. It's like we can always find excuses to not do things. Uh, my advice is to get up off your butt and get out there and make something happen. And if you're new to this, uh, the first thing I want to say is congratulations. You're listening to a podcast about it. 
which is a luxury I didn't have in 2002. There were no podcasts. So you're already like ahead of me, just the fact that you're doing that. Uh, I would also get out and start meeting other people that are doing it, uh, get to know who's who. There's a, there's a lot of bad guys in any business, but there, for every bad guy, there's 10 good guys. And, uh, and you'll start to find out who's who really easy. And that's the bad, the, avoid the bad guys, hang out with the good guys. And, you know, you want to build the relationships and it's as simple as just asking somebody if you can take them to lunch. If you ask somebody out to lunch, you're expected to pay for lunch. I do the same thing. I just asked uh, another guy out to lunch. We're meeting in two weeks and I'm paying for lunch. You know, it's like, it doesn't matter the fact that I've been doing this three times longer than him. Uh, but it's well worth your time and money because if you can take somebody out to lunch and you spend 20 bucks on their, you know, whatever they're going to eat, um, and you can spend an hour or two with them, you might save yourself six months of studying just from this hour or two information that you can get. And of course, you know, thank them and, you know, let them know if there's anything that, that you can do for them that you'd be happy to help. And uh, because the truth is we all do better when we help each other and there's enough out there for all of us. So did I answer your question? I could go on and on, man. I could talk for two I think hours. so. I think, <laughs> I think essentially the, like you were saying is that it's always a good time to buy if the numbers it make is. sense. Yep. Yep. Now, the last point on this subject, in today's market, returns. I mean, I know that right now it's a little hard to find it. Mm -hmm. Someone that's a newbie, what returns do you personally think he should try to focus on? Uh, that's kind of tough for me to answer because after I figured out this Burr method, like I haven't spent hardly any money buying properties the last 15 years. Like wow. most of them, I wind up with zero or very little out of pocket and, you know, 20, 30% equity and I'm cash flowing. Wow. So when you look at it like that, and that's not like a secret, like I, I didn't invent this, I discovered it, but so did a thousand other people. And uh, let me just, I want to say this real quick. Years ago, I was flipping houses and I never really liked flipping houses. And I always had this fear that what if nobody buys it? Then what am I going to do? I'm stuck with this house. And then I thought, well, okay, I'm I got a house. I don't want it. But I'm stuck with it, and I got to pay my hard money lender back. And I'm working the problem just like I explained a little while ago. So I'm looking at the front of the problem, looking at the back, and I'm thinking, okay, well, I guess I could just rent it out to a tenant and then refinance it and keep it. And then I thought, well, instead of buying the house using that method, instead of buying it to flip it, what if I use the same formula to buy it, refi it, and hold it? And once I figured that out, then uh, I think the first one that I did was a 15 unit using that method. It was eight apartments and seven commercial spaces. And that was the first property that I bought, uh, renovated, rented out and refinanced and got all the money back. Uh, wound up with 15 units with zero out of pocket and a few hundred thousand dollars in equity. That's the first one I did. And once I did that, I was just like, you know, I knew that there was no end. I could go as far as I wanted. Wow. And you believe, I mean, I've, I've been looking into pick up something like similar or something, that idea, but I'm always running into that refinancing issue these days where it's 8%. That's true. But if the, let me ask you, if I offer you a house in Bel Air Edison, $130,000, completely renovated, lead free, it's got a tenant paying $1,700 a month, it appraised for $165,000, and I'll give it to you with zero out of pocket. It's got an 8% note at 30 years and it's gonna cash flow $600 a month. Would you want it? If it cash flows at 600 a month, I would take it. What if it's 500 a month? 
cash got, flow, meaning after repairs, maintenance, and all that calculated. Yeah, yeah. I'll take it. Yeah, four hundred. That that I zero out of pocket. Well, then yes. Yeah, as long as it's, I would say, as long as it's under before it hits three hundred, because then you got to calculate for every every two three years having that renovation. Come yeah, up I've already got that in my numbers. Oh, so yeah, yeah I'm, I'm already putting us money in escrow. If I break month. even, I would do yeah. it. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so, so that's what I mean. It's like it's hard to calculate your return on your investment. If you're zero out of pocket, even if you're making $5 a month and you've got 30000 in equity, how do you calculate? You can't divide by zero. Right. And, uh, and like I said before, even if you've got, you know, a million dollars in the bank, if, if you've got to spend twenty twenty five thousand, if you've got to spend 25000 for each transaction, you're going to do 40 transactions and then you're broke. Right. And now that's something I'm, that's what I'm saying because I'm running into that issue now. Right. I'm like, but, uh, and now it's like, the Burr method is the way to go, man. It is. It is. But I gotta, I gotta find out how to get a deal that refies properly. The how do I put this? My advice to you would be the same as the hopefully the people that are listening to this is you want to go out and find other people that are doing it. Take them out to lunch and ask them how'd you find the deal? How'd you find the bank? How did the appraiser work out? You know all that stuff. It's just. Uh, it really is that simple. And it's, the people, the winners want to see other people win. It's not defined by how much you have or don't have, but to me a winner wants to see other people win and losers you know, don't wanna see you win. And it doesn't matter how much money you have or how many houses you have, it's more of an attitude that's the difference between a winner and a loser. And the winners wanna help other people and see them win. Because they know that the more winners there are, the better the world is. And, yeah. and, and, and I live in the world, so it's like, I want everybody to win, you know, then we'll all be happy. And, exactly. Uh, so that would be my advice to you and anyone else that's listening is find other people that are doing exactly what you want to do and, and do whatever it takes to pick their brain. Beautiful, beautiful. And I, I really appreciate your time here, Mark. As always, it's great to meet up, really talk through these things. Before we do finish, mm -hmm. is there any last points you wanted to bring up? Uh, yeah, I just I want to mention this. And I, I've already, it's kind of dovetail on what I've said before. The most important things are your network and also your reputation. You want, you know, this is what I tell my clients when I do coach is you want to be the most well-known and well-respected investor in your market. No matter, doesn't matter where the market's at. When your name comes up, you want people and you're not there. You want people to say, man, he's a good guy. Like he's really, he's decent. Like if you've got that going on, then nothing's going to stop you. Uh, if everybody knows you and they all think you're a jerk, then, you know, good luck. So it doesn't matter if you invest in Baltimore or Cincinnati or Miami. You want to get to know as many people as you can and have the best reputation possible. And your reputation isn't just being a nice guy. Your reputation is paying your bills one time. You know, if you don't pay your plumber for two months, you know, that's going to affect your reputation. Uh, your credit score is part of your reputation. You know, it's a small community, and if your credit score is 610, and you've gone to see five banks, those five bankers know other people that are in this business and they're gonna say, yeah, you know that one guy came in, he can't get a loan, his credit's 610. So, and is that terrible? Yeah, it is, but you know, that's just real life. So all of those different things, uh, they all matter. And those are probably the most important things I would say is network and reputation, that's it. Beautiful, beautiful. And I think that it's something that people, sh everyone should work on, we met, from networking. Yes, yep. And reputation, networking, I love it. And I'm here because I want to see other people win. 
you know, if, if I can say something during this that makes a difference in somebody's life, it is well worth the hour I spent, you know, with you doing it. It's well worth it. Well, what I could say is definitely spent a good hour because there's definitely things that I've learned just in this conversation alone. And I do appreciate again. Thank you so much, Mark, for coming out. Everyone, if you are listening at this point, I hope you are, please subscribe for any new episodes that come out. We are working on some new special guests as well. Stay tuned for more podcasts, and I hope you guys have success in your endeavors.